Previously on Ill-Equipped History. That son is a Cantrell machine. And y'all will do best not to mess with them. They run this town. This is the place for the only successful armed rebellion since the Revolutionary War. Blair and McTeer jump into a taxi and force it into a high-speed chase. Introduce what is known to be the Ripper Bill that the Americans entered the war in December of 1941 after Pearl Harbor. Well, and like his whole platform was no more fee grabbing. And then the second he's elected, he's like, oh, I get to keep the money for myself. Uh-huh. Arrests ran as high as 115 a weekend. Voter fraud. Like, why not take it a step further and be like, oh, Kentron has a million votes. And with Cantrell now as a senator, his right-hand man as a sheriff, and the war limiting people's resources, there didn't really seem to be a way out of it. Welcome back to Ill-Equipped History. We are Morgan and Emily, your beautiful hosts, who are not qualified to talk about history, and we're going to do it anyway. Hell yeah. So, how you doing, Morgan? I'm great. I am so ready to hear the rest of this crazy story that I didn't know as much of. Like, I had no idea it was this much. I'm yeah, really good at talking right either. now. Well, you heard the way that I did the first episode of this topic, and I just stuttered all over myself (laughs) anyway. So uh, I'm still carrying the same energy. So sorry, audience. Um, If you haven't listened to episode one of the Battle of Athens, go back. Pause. Do not listen to this one until you listen to that first one, because it's very important to know the backstory of what we're going to talk about today. But we are going to set the scene. We're going to do our little skit and then we're going to get into what happened that day. Sounds good. Some GIs are sitting around the table at the VFW telling stories about the war when the conversation turns to local politics. My dad just told me that while I was gone, those damn Mansfield's deputies arrested him while he walked home. They looked in his bag and said his milk smelled funny. It was just milk. My sister said that they drug her date off the dance floor and arrested him. He was in and out of that jail so fast, he had enough time to go back and get her and bring her home by curfew. Of course, he was $16 poorer. Did y'all hear about that one boy last year? A sailor, I think. He was killed by one of those deputies. He wasn't even a real deputy. They swore him in right there at the bar. They even pushed the trial back. Hey y'all, are we gonna let them do this to us? We fought our asses off in the war to come home to another damn form of Hitler's regime. How about we get our own candidates and fix this shit? Hell yeah! Let's do it! We should probably keep this down low as much as possible, though. Y'all want to meet down at my barn tomorrow night? It's private enough. Good idea. See y'all tomorrow night. We're taking our town back. Hell yeah. 
So, we're back in Athens, Tennessee, y'all, in 1946. So, before we talk about what happened exactly on the day, we're going to go into a lot more detail than we did the other elections, because this one is the most important one. So, in the early days of the end of the war, like I said in the last episode, the veterans were coming home. And by early 1946, the streets of Athens, quote, overflowed with uniforms. And they overflowed with uniforms because wartime clothes rations were still in effect. And sometimes the uniforms were the only clothes that fit them after the war. Except for Jimmy Locke Miller, who stood out like a sore thumb because he got Hawaiian shirts when... <laughs> when he went to the Pacific. <laughs> so he's just like this one dude walking around with Hawaiian shirts. And I just in love that Mick they made Mid it a County. point to say that. In McMinn County in 1946, he's just wearing Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> I don't think anyone wears Hawaiian shirts there now. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't think they do. <laughs> I don't think I've seen a single Hawaiian shirt until I like moved out of McMinn County. <laughs> No, but but damn it, Jimmy Lockmiller has his, and he earned that Hawaiian shirt, right. and he's wearing it. So the Cantrell forces were not worried one bit. In fact, the veterans were targeted by the sheriff because he knew that they had money because of coming out of the war, and they knew that the, what day the GIs got paid and would arrest accordingly. Oh, man. And the sheriff is Mansfield, right? Correct. We are, Sheriff is Mansfield, who is under the control of the Cantrell machine. Cantrell is now a senator, and we'll get into all of, you know, who is what okay. and where okay. in a bit, because it does change up a little bit. Now, Bill White, one of the GIs, recalled coming home from outer, outer space, <laughs> overseas. I was like, I said outer space. what does that mean? <laughs> Okay, this is him quoting. There were several beer joints and hockey tonks mm -hmm. around Athens. We were pretty wild. We started having trouble with the law enforcement at the time because they started making a habit of picking up GIs and finding them heavily for most anything. They were kind of making a racket out of it. After long, hard years of service, most of us were hardcore veterans of World War II. We were used to drinking our liquor and our beer without being molested. When these things happened, the GIs got madder. The more GIs they arrested, the more they beat us up, the madder we got, end quote. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. So deputies would grab GIs straight off the dance floor. And sometimes they would pay that 1605. And go right back to the dance Which, floor. Which, again, I looked it up in that last episode, is the equivalent of almost $350 in today's money. Which is ridiculous. For shaking your booty too much. <laughs> shaking your booty too much. How dare you? <laughs> You'd be flat broke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too thick to get fined every time I dance. <laughs> Sometimes the deputies would walk into a bar 
And I don't know if this is efficiency or just pure laziness, but he would just walk into a bar and announce, you're all drunk and under arrest. All of you. Everyone would then be loaded into police cars and taken to jail. And worst off, there were siren bandits who were just law enforcement who would pull people over and then just rob them. And then have them go on their merry so, way. So what would happen... I don't know if you get into this later, but what would happen if someone just didn't happen to have like 1650 on them or just didn't have it? I don't know. I don't know if they were, they probably would have to call somebody and someone would have to come pay it for them. But I mean, think if you're a traveler. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're going to have money on you, but what if you only had 1650 to get you home? Yeah. Now you have no money to get home. Right. Or like if you're just in poverty and you don't happen to have. Yeah. $16 on you. You better hope mama has $16 because you're not getting out. And the longer you're there, remember, the longer you're there, the more expensive it gets. Oh, I hate that Because you're getting, you're having to pay for every meal. Yeah. Ugh, I hate that so So, much. So, so we're backing up just a little bit. Um, In September of 1944, Earl Ford... He was in the Navy. He was home after being at war for 16 months. Him and Luke Miller, another sailor, went to the halfway court, which was a bar two miles out of Athens on the Sweetwater Road. So on your way to Sweetwater, Mm -hmm. it was right there. Ford asked to use their phone, which was in plain sight, and they were told they didn't have one. So Ford and Miller were like, well, fine, fuck y'all. We'll just go home, Mm -hmm. whatever. Ford and Miller got up and left. Menace Wilburn, a deputy, thought that they looked like easy targets and on the spot deputized George Sperling and Clyde Davis, who were known criminals, swore them in as officers of the law in order to assist in the arrest of Ford and Miller, who were just trying to go. Yeah, like why are you even arresting them? Because they look like easy targets. For drunkenness, because they were at a bar. So they followed the men into the parking lot. Sperling, one of the deputies, Mm -hmm. quote, clubbed Ford over the head repeatedly. And Ford raised his hand in surrender. Sperling told him not to move or he would shoot. Ford didn't move. And Sperling shot him anyway. Oh, my God. Ford fell to the ground. And was left there for 20 minutes after being shot and was pronounced dead at Forey Hospital. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this is making me so upset. It hurts my heart because this man fought for 16 months in World War II just to come home and be killed by a crooked cop. For no, absolutely no reason. No, no. The shooting was defended in the newspaper by Mansfield saying that Wilburn undertook to subdue a bunch of disorderly sailors and others. His funeral attracted, quote, one of the largest crowds ever to assemble in Decatur. And his epitaph read, quote, killed in the service of his country in Athens, Tennessee. Oh, oh, I just got a bunch of chill bumps. I'm going to cry. And Ford's family pushed... For prosecution. Yeah. And the trial was scheduled for October. Miller, you know, his friend Luke Miller, was still in the hospital because he had been blackjacked 
by Wilburn so badly that he couldn't testify at the oh time. Oh, my God. So he ended up living, but he was badly beaten. And then it was pushed again back to July. So it kept just getting pushed back and pushed back. So we will revisit this story later, but just know that this happened. And, and when did this happen? In September of 44. Okay. So, right before, you know, about a year before the end of the war completely, before the, a lot of the men started coming okay. home. So, right at the early times of when they started coming okay. home. Tourist agencies, at this point, in about 1944, started advising travelers to just not to go to McMinn County. Yeah. Going as far as drawing a big red circle <laughs> around McMinn County with a like in red ink and writing beware <laughs> beware yeah. do not go you there. will get robbed by the police and <laughs> how horrible is that for the economy in mcmahon county that now all of a sudden we're not getting any travelers through here and if we do they're not stopping yeah they're just whoop, don't stop and here. citizens are being robbed left and right mm-hmm they are. So it's not, yeah, it's very profitable for the sheriff and his deputies, but these people are wanting to move out of McMinn County. They're tired of this yeah. shit. And November 8th in 1944, Congressman Jennings sent an urgent wire to the Attorney General saying George Woods, in his capacity as election commissioner, claimed to have 1,500 absentee ballots and profanely refused when asked for the voter list. Unless you put the FBI men on this gigantic fraud at once, it will be consummate and all evidence of the names and residences of these alleged voters will be destroyed. Please reply. Oh my gosh. To the Attorney General, he heard nothing back. So like I said in the last episode, he was the only one going up to bat. He was the only one fighting for the rights of McMinn County citizens who was in power to do something, anything about it legally, something. And he was just repeatedly getting ignored and ignored and ignored. Oh, that's so frustrating. It is very frustrating. So people would walk a block out of their way to avoid the jail because the sidewalks were cracked. And if you stumbled, you would be arrested for being oh drunk. Oh my God. If you tripped on a crack in the sidewalk. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't and handle this. remember... <laughs> Remember our beautiful, from just a few minutes ago, our beautiful five J's of Jellico. Yes. Mr. Jennings himself. Uh, in early 1945, Woods redrew the congressional map of Tennessee for the sole purpose of removing McMinn from Jennings' district. More gerrymandering going on. So they gerrymandered it to where Jennings wasn't in control of McMinn County anymore and couldn't really help. Wow. So they shut him up. Mansfield, just for reference, had netted an estimated $104,000 in his four years as sheriff. That would be $1,505,792 in today's money. Oh my God. As compared to the... So he was supposed to make $5,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So in four years, he should have made $20,000. Yeah. He made $104,000. Yeah. Instead of 20. Because he's literally robbing people left and right. Yeah. And the DPA, for y'all that don't know, the Daily Post-Athenian, mm. that's our newspaper yeah. in Athens, posted on New Year's Day on the front page of the newspaper 
a little picture of a doe carrying a banner saying, Peace, 1946. Yeah, sure. Not here. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Not yet. <laughs> no. No, maybe maybe in other places. Yeah. <laughs> Not here. So the GIs are pissed as hell when they come back. Yeah. Of course they are. So Bill Grubb, which if I had to guess, would probably be like the father or grandfather of the principal when we were in high school. I don't know that for a fact. I just know the Grubb See, last okay, name. See, so. okay, I just, one quick little thing. Like you're saying a lot of last names. And a lot of the last names that you're saying are people, are last names of people I knew growing up in Athens. Absolutely. I mean, I would ask mom and dad, or not really mom because she's from Kentucky, but I would ask dad like, oh, hey, do you know this name? He's like, yeah, yeah. My dad used to talk about that guy all the time. Or, Mm -hmm. and I'd ask my in-laws and they could, you know, Nick's mom could tell me all about this stuff and even Corey's dad and Nick's grandmother was a plethora and and we'll get into their at the very end we're going to get into like who was what in the families and okay. and stuff like that cuz you will be shocked when you realize where these places were and all this other stuff. This is a good time to get out the map. Okay. By the um, way. Right, I'm getting out the map. So, Bill Grubb was a GI, Mm -hmm. and he was invited to come to the VFW, and for y'all that don't know what that is, it's the Veterans of Foreign Wars, like, meeting place, Mm -hmm. and the meetings used to happen in the courthouse. He didn't think that they had enough space in the courthouse for all of the GIs to meet, so he sought out Paul Walker, who was Athens' mayor at the time. He did not drive race cars. <laughs> he was Athens mayor. <laughs> you know, there's like a tiny like nugget in my brain. I was like, Paul Walker, that name sounds familiar. But I didn't even make that. <laughs> yeah. He did not go fast in cars. He was the mayor and the owner of the Robert E. Lee Hotel. Fun fact, Morgan. We took our prom pictures in the Robert E. Lee Hotel. Oh, we did. It's where Open Door was. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone digs through our Facebook enough, they'll find those (laughs) pictures. Oh, God. We're Um, both very tan. (laughs) Very tan. Mine was was real, Mm -hmm. but I had some real nice tan line where my bathing suit was. But anyway, so Paul said, Paul Walker, the mayor, um, said that there was a room that had been used for the prohibition in the basement of the hotel... It doesn't really get a lot of use anymore, so you're welcome to use that. Okay. And Bill was like, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. So this is a place where they began to speak freely about war stories because, I mean, as, as much as a loving wife or parents or children are, no one can really understand what those men went through other than the other men that went through yeah. it. And the, the book that I read went into great detail about some of the struggles of some of the people that went through it. And it my heart goes out to those people. Yeah. And so they really started talking about war stories. And the, the topics really always came back to the local issues. And this is where they decided that they had enough. This is, this is something that they can do something about. 
we're going to run. We're going to take our county back. And they decided to feel the slate of their own candidates for the August election. But they kept it a secret because talking against anything Cantrell Machine would get you threatened, beat up, everything like that. So they didn't even tell their wives or their parents or anybody until the last minute. This is the OG Fight Club. The OG Fight Club. No one talks about the GI candidates except the GI candidates. So in May, they publicly announced their candidacy. So the election's in August. They announce it in May. So let's get into who these candidates were. Um, So for Sheriff, we had Sergeant Knox Henry, who spent 40 months in the Army Air Corps. Okay. He was wounded in a Jeep wreck in North Africa. He was 33, married with one child, and a Republican. For Trustee, we have Frank Carmichael. He was in the Army. And the tank that Frank was standing close to was hit by a German shell. And went up in flames. Oh, man. Frank's ears started to bleed. Because I don't think he was in another vehicle. He was just, like, standing there. Oh, wow. Started to bleed when he came to. So he was knocked out. He carried a fellow soldier to an aid station. Oh, my God. And then that aid station was blown up by another ship. Oh, my God. So he was taken to another aid station. Where they told him he was unable to return to his company because of his hearing loss. Could be a danger to him and others in the company. Yeah, makes sense. And one more shell, you're going to be completely deaf. Yeah, makes um, sense. So he went back home to Etowah where he worked on his family farm and he was a Democrat. Okay. I really tried to find as much as I could about these people because I feel like their stories need to be told. Yeah. I couldn't find a lot about Bill Hamby. He, he was running for circuit court, circuit court clerk. He was 29 and he lived in Athens and worked as a building supply salesman. And he was a Democrat. Okay. So I don't know if he was a GI, but he was definitely on the GI side. Okay. Um, for county court clerk was Sergeant George Painter. He was 32. He had been wounded in Okinawa and was recently married. Aww. He manufactured fabric in Etowah and was a Democrat. Okay, so it's really, it looks like it's a pretty bipartisan party coming up. Like you have Republicans and you have Democrats yep. That really want yep. to make change in their county. And that was their whole spiel. That was their whole thing was that we don't give a shit what party you're in. And that's what I love about this so much is they were, it's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's literally good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Like it is, we're coming together, even though we have differences of opinions, we're going to come together. We fought together. We're going to fight together again. To overtake the oppression. Yeah. We're going to do it. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And so for Register of Deeds, we have Captain Charlie Pickle. He was 52, and he was an infantry sniper from World War I who had been badly wounded and worked as a carpenter in Inglewood, and he was a Republican. I would like to point out that for the 
longest time in my life, I never really put together the fact that World War One and World War Two happened so close together. Yeah. And there was actually someone who lived through the, I think it was the Civil War, World War One, and World War Two. So, like, they were, like, a baby and then an old person. Wow. So they lived through all of them. It's just insanity that they were all so close together because you... I've always compartmentalized them as... Yeah, they're separate events. Very... Yeah, yeah. So that's who is running for the... um, Was it one, two, three, five slots? So a 28-member GI committee was formed, including those running for office and others like Jim Buttram, who was the full-time campaign manager. He served in the Army Air Corps, referred to as a natural leader. In high school, he was the captain of the football team. He was elected May King. He was voted most independent in 1942 at McMahon County High. So he was like, he was a popular He's an all-American boy. (laughs) He was. And he was in the 9th Infantry Division for 30 months from North Africa to Sicily, and then from mainland Italy to France. He was shot in the leg in Cherbourg. Is that Cherbourg? I think that's how you say that. His campaign management experience was limited to his girlfriend running for homecoming queen in high school. <laughs> but but she won. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So when asked about his party affiliation, he responded with, I don't expect to ever commit myself to vote any straight party ticket all the way down the line. And good for him. Yeah, he wanted to vote for people who aligned with his values, whatever that looked like. Exactly. Exactly. And I highly support that. So Ralph Dugan, um, we spoke about him a little bit in the previous episode. He was hired to focus on the message and create content for print and radio and served as the, quote, final word for any problem. So I guess if they were having an issue deciding on something, Ralph Dugan would be the deciding factor. He was the most politically experienced of the group because he was the son of the last Republican sheriff, Davy Davy Crockett Dugan. Okay, that's what I was about to ask. Was he related to Mr. Davy Crockett Dugan? He absolutely was. <laughs> that was his daddy. <laughs> so okay. he was a local lawyer, and he was actually medically ineligible to serve due to Bright's disease, which was a kidney disease. And he oh. eventually convinced a doctor to let him enlist anyway. So he oh, wow. I don't think he really ever saw like a battlefield per se, but he Mm -hmm. was like an assistant to really higher ups. And he did a lot of really, really big things. So he came back to Athens to his wife and son and his law practice in November, 1945. He was 37 and was the eldest of the committee other than pickle who was Mm -hmm. 52. They're in their Mm -hmm. early twenties to early thirties. And they're Mm -hmm. just taking on this well-oiled machine, and I'm here for it. So, Les Dooley, he was a POW, prisoner of war. He had lost an arm in the war when he was shot by the French 
And then when he was taken to a French war camp, a doctor tried to save his arm. They couldn't, so they ended up having to amputate it. I know. Oh, man. So Charles Scott Jr., he went by shy because apparently he had a big personality, and they nicknamed him Shy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's just how he... Yeah. Yeah, he went by Shy. So he is the son of Cantrell's 1936 opponent, Scott. So his father oh. ran against Cantrell in 1936. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He apparently lost the tip of his finger in a family lumber mill, and he served in the Army Air Corps. Jimmy Locke Miller, right. Mr. Hawaiian Shirt himself, he was... In the Marines. And he has a interesting backstory. So him and his father and his stepmother didn't really see eye to eye. So before he went off to the war, his father and his stepmother had sent him to a boarding school. Well, he snuck out of the boarding school and came home in the middle of the night, got his stuff, as much stuff as he could, and he hoboed his way to California. And he just did, like, the coolest shit, and I don't have time to get into it, but definitely look up all the things he did, because he was, like, an extra in a movie, and he, like, broke horses in on a farm, and, like, he just did all this stuff. And then when Pearl Harbor happened, he came home, but he couldn't go without his parents' signature. I think he was 17 at the time. So he returned home to get his parents' signature. His parents were like, if that's what you want to do... Here you go. So then he went into the Marines. Um, He contracted malaria and then was diagnosed with shell shock during his time in Guadalcanal. And he was relieved from duty and sent to a hospital ship. Then a hospital in both San Francisco and Fort Worth. He was honorably discharged January 1st of 1944, where he was sent home and he worked security at... Our lovely place called Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Oh, look at that. Home of the Manhattan Project. If our lovely listeners didn't know that we just have a, a plant that could have blown up at any time. <laughs> like an hour from us. Right here in East Tennessee. We got a lot going on in East Tennessee, y'all. <laughs> so, chairman of the Republican Party was Otto Kennedy. His father, his little backstory, he was not a GI, but his father was the sheriff of Monroe County until he was killed in action. He was a very just, well-loved sheriff. Um, Otto, at the time, was living in Michigan with his wife and a daughter, and he's the eldest son. So he came home, and him and his brother, Bull, B-U-L-L, Bull. Otto and Bull. Otto and Bull. I'm telling you, they don't name kids like they used to. Try, they tried to stop the court from putting in a one of Cantrell's men, basically, in Monroe County. Because, you know, Cantrell, it's, it's growing. So, they tried to put in their own candidate for sheriff. And do you know who that was? Their mother. 
Oh my god. I, I love, love that. it so much. Get it, Mama <laughs> Kennedy. Get it. I, I'm kind of, I don't even know that much about her. I'm scared of her. Respectfully. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, if they want, like, hey, our mother should be the sheriff, which is very obviously a predominantly male role, and they're like, no, she'll she'll do her job. Like, don't that's cross a scary her. lady right there. Don't cross her. No. Mm-mm. I know, I love it so much. They, I love that. Unfortunately, big shock, rigged election. She didn't win, you know, so he moved him and his wow. family to a farm in Mittman County uh, where he worked as a bail bondsman and opened... SNK Tires in downtown Athens. That's a very um, prominent location of this story. It is across from where the Daily Post Athenian used to be on the map. It is circled in orange, but um, I will post okay. what it looks like now because I do have a picture of it. Um, so okay. it's orange. And across the street in silver, you'll see the mm-hmm. GI headquarters, number 17. So they're right across yes. from each other. Um, he was nearly 40 mm-hmm. when the war broke out and wasn't drafted and he didn't serve. Um, he was very dedicated to the Republican Party and worked on his campaigns. He thought that politics were pretty much a matter of life and death. So he ran... He worked on all the campaigns for every previous sheriff candidate for the Republican Party since 1936. So that took him to becoming chairman of the county Republican Party. He was approached by the campaign committee and like, look, we need the Republican Party to support us if we're going to do this. And he was like, absolutely. I fucking got you guys. Y'all have the Republican Party support. We're going to do it. So meanwhile, there was um, some back and forth with like Otto Kennedy and Jim Buttram because Bill White... Mm -hmm who, again, was pretty much the only one to publicly tell his accounts. Um, So a lot of the information that we have is from his point of view. Uh, So apparently Bill White was saying, like, we're going to have to fight fire with fire. We're going to have to fight violence with violence, pretty much. So Jim Buttram and Otto Kennedy were like, that's, you're just going to get us killed. Like, I don't think that's a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's probably not a bad idea to get some people to protect the election day, right? So Bill White formed the Fighting Bunch, which is, you know, what they kind of nicknamed the people that fought that day. So it's May of 1946. We've got a couple months until the election, August 1st. So it's time. Mm-hmm. To get down, boots on the ground, we got a campaign. So they informed the public that they were running at a as a nonpartisan party. We're just against the Cantrells. Yeah. Please vote for us, basically. The GIs took to the streets and back roads. These men are so used to being organized, split into groups. We got to cover all the ground. We got to do the things. 
They covered every inch of the county, and by the campaign, quote, there was hardly a voter in the county who hadn't met at least some of the candidates personally. Love that. Wow. They were going on every back road. They were hanging up signs. They were everywhere. They had where it says the GI headquarters downtown. Um, they had a big sign that said GI headquarters phone 787, which still kind of blows my mind that that was a whole <laughs> phone number. Just three numbers. It's so easy to remember. 787. So people could call and talk to them if they had any accounts of voter fraud. They could call that down and stuff like that. And they really started getting heavily in on newspaper ads and radio ads. So they would broadcast on the radio. Um, Let's see. This last bit of this quote is going to blow your mind. So, the GIs broadcasted, quote, Do you believe that every vote voted in an election should be counted as cast? Do you believe that the open gambling houses should be operating in McMinn County? Do you think that the voters of McMinn County owe Paul Cantrell anything more? Do you believe that three terms as sheriff, four terms as chairman of the county court, and two terms as state senator should satisfy Mr. Cantrell? Should a man be chairman of the county court and also sheriff of McMinn County? Do you believe that any man seeking public office should be forced to get the blessing of any man before getting permitted to run? Do you believe that the sheriff of McMinn County should make more than the vice president of the United States? End quote. You're right. That did blow my mind. (laughs) Blew your mind. The freaking sheriff of McMinn County was making more than the vice president. And they made some good ass points. And I would also like to point out that at this point I said there were going to be some switcheroos going around. So, in this 1946 election, Pat Mansfield wanted to go and be senator, mm-hmm. and Paul Cantrell was wanting to step down and come back to be um, sheriff. So they're, so they're switching. Just swapping. So they're swapping. So in this election, instead of running against Mansfield, now we're running back against Paul Cantrell. Mm. Which is really interesting that this is the year that would everything would blow up. And apparently his family was horrified at the fact that he would step down. It's like, oh my God, you could have just kept going. Yeah, you were already a senator. You know, yeah. sky's the limit. But apparently what he said is he had home fires to tend to. Yeah. So maybe he was getting a little nervous. Well, things seem to be escaping his control, and that's his uh-huh. thing, right? Is he is wanting to be completely in control, so he needs to go back and fix it. Exactly. So we're running against Paul Cantrell at this point. Uh, the candidates began getting threatening calls at their home throughout the night and menacing postcards in the mail, which a menacing postcard in 2023 doesn't sound terrifying at all but no not really no i think it's kind of cute like oh you took the time but 
back then. <laughs> that You're was... thinking of me. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but apparently some of the phone calls were like whispered threats. And they said that the worst ones were when they just answered and it was dead silent on the other end of the line. How creepy yeah. is that? Yeah, no, I was about to say that's so creepy. So apparently Knox Henry was walking with a friend one day and a deputy just came out and clubbed his friend right in front of him. Oh my God. Just to prove a point. The GI started getting roughed up for putting up posters and a meeting was called to discuss the violence. And this is where the notion of like fighting with fire with fire came from. Cause they were like, I guess it's not working. Like I said before, maybe we do need something. Us being um, peaceful is not enough anymore. No, it's like, we don't want to fight, mm -hmm. but I guess we're going to have to get a little organized. So mm -hmm. most didn't want to resort to violence, like I said, but they needed a backup plan. So that's when Bill White started putting together the fighting bunch. And I'd like to point out that the machine, the Cantrell machine, didn't campaign at all. They were very silent. Why would he, why would he have why would he to? to? He's going he's to forge all the votes anyway. Yep. And Jim Buttram and Congressman Jennings, even though McMinn County wasn't his problem anymore, still continued to wire the Attorney General and the Governor, who was uh, Governor McCord, for help and still got either no response or just no. Aww. J J J J J J J J J J J of Jellico Jellico Jellico. So, um, I am gonna break it down to advertisements that were posted in the DPA. Okay. Because there's a lot of back and forth between the two parties, and it's right there in the paper. So, the DPA itself posted, I don't know at what point, so I put it at the beginning, but they posted, quote, it's your right, privilege, and duty to make your choices from among the candidates for all public elected officials. As free men and women, we also urge all qualified citizens to go about the exercise of their rights, duties, and privileges as they see fit in an orderly, peaceful manner. Vote election day. Watch how your votes are counted, and if you so desire, that too is your right. End quote. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Couldn't have said yep. it better myself. Go do the damn thing. And at the time, if you're having to hand count votes, sit there and watch it. Yeah. And that comes later in the story where that's important. So, in the final week of the election, a week before the election... Uh, in the newspaper, Cantrell enumerated the accomplishments of the Democratic Party, saying, you know, we've been doing a great job. Bullshit. My pockets Me are so fat with cash right now. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we're doing a good job. Yeah. Um, Mansfield denied that two men arrested on July 30th with a shipment of liquor were deputies, even though they admitted they were, and they had been delivering, quote, election whiskey. They even had paperwork saying that they were deputies. Were these the deputies that were deputized in the bar? 
<laughs> I don't like, think so. Four years prior. <laughs> but apparently, Mansfield had 16 full-time deputies and had deputized, like, 30 other people as just backups. Oh So, God knows who these people were. Um, They also said that uh, downtown merchants announced that all stores would be closed on election day to give employees the chance to vote. Although, this had not been necessary in previous elections. The merchants were perhaps following the example of the mayor of Athens, Paul Walker, who would be vacationing on election day. He's just not even going to show up. Hell no, that sounds like danger. Yeah, wow. So Cantrell warned that the veterans had printed sample ballots with the intention of stuffing ballot boxes. The veterans offered a $1,000 reward for verifiable information about the election fraud and repeated a slogan that for weeks had sounded again and again from the car-mounted loudspeakers, which was, your vote will be counted as cast. Yeah. So. Wow. So basically, Cantor was pointing fingers, but the one who smelt it dealt it, so. (laughs) Every finger you point at them, there's three pointed back at you. Exactly. So that was in the week or so before the election. Two days before the election, and remember, these are all in the newspaper. It's like watching a Facebook comment fight. <laughs> um, the, the GIs posted that, quote, These young men fought and won a war for good government. They know what it takes and what it means to have a clean government. And they are energetic enough, honest enough, and intelligent enough to give us a good, clean government. Beautiful. I love it. Finger snaps. Thank you. Yes. And then a couple of pages further on in the same newspaper, the Democrats had their say, quote, look at the facts and you will vote for the Democratic ticket. The campaign fight is as old as the hills. It is the story of the outs wanting back in. I don't like that. You've been in this entire time. Yeah, like, why Why are you calling the G.I.s out? Like, they went off to fight a war. Yeah. And, and they just said, look at the facts. They didn't state what the facts were. No. They're just talking out of their ass. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, anywho, one day before the election, the front page stated... VFW members in neighboring Blunt County said that 450 veterans were ready to respond to any need in McMinn County. Oh, wow. I know. Thank you, neighbors. All these surrounding counties, they're like, we see you, McMinn County. We see it's fucked right now, and we will help you. So Mansfield began building an army of his own. Quote, It has come to my attention that certain elements intend to create a disturbance at and around the polls. In order to see that law and order is maintained, I will have several hundred deputies patrolling the county. He hired all of them from outside the county 
some from out of state, and would crowd inside the voting precinct. They're all armed. Some of them were prison guards. Some were prisoners. Yikes. Some were just... Ugh. Yikes. I mean, he had literally 250 to 300 deputies came in that day. Wow. To surround the county. So, you ready to get into election day? Oh my gosh, please. I've been ready. <laughs> I'm like adjusting. I'm like getting ready for it. Now, audience, there's going to be a lot of back and forth between different polling places. I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. And I would like to point out that some sources had a couple different uh, like discrepancies. And for clarity, I'm just going to say the discrepancies at the end. So if anyone really knows the story and I say it wrong, give me a minute and, and I'll, you know, get into the discrepancies at least that I found. So election day, 7 a.m. Deputies started lining the streets, the 250, 300. I mean, these are big burly men. One of them was, was reported to look like he was out of an old Wild West movie. And I don't know why that was so funny to me. He had a massive mustache. <laughs> he, he was like, he had like the, the, what is it, chaps that you wear when you're, <laughs> like the. <laughs> yes. Just imagine a cowboy. Anyway, so Athens had three polling places downtown. The Waterworks Building, mm -hmm. the Courthouse, and the Dixie Cafe. Etowah Precinct was in the Cantrell Bank. In a previous election, which is a story I didn't tell because of time, the ballot box was taken from a location into the bank. And I guess this year they were just like, oh, we'll cut out the middleman. We'll just have the election in the bank. So, <laughs> so this election brought the largest crowd ever remembered to this point, And the voters started lining up early. Now, Bud Evans a GI poll watcher in Etowah asked to see the ballot box opened to ensure that it was empty before they started. Yeah. He, he was okay. arrested. He was arrested. And then they opened the ballot box and it was empty. So they just arrested him for no reason. For the audacity. That was before the polls. I know. <laughs> How dare he question the, the crooked cops. Yeah. So... That was before the polls opened. Polls opened at 9 a.m. So Walter Ellis, a legally appointed GI representative in the courthouse, was arrested and jailed for protesting irregularities. Right off the bat, he was saying, you're not doing this right. That's, you know, that person's uh, voting illegally. She's not even old enough. You know, all this pointing out the the wrong things, and he was immediately arrested. Uh, when people asked what law he broke, Deputy Frank Walker responded with, quote, a federal one. <laughs> <laughs> Just made it up. <laughs> you can't, you can't Felix, question the federal. Question the federal. No. 
laws. Don't you dare question the federal laws. It's a federal one. <laughs> Felix Herod took his place as poll watcher. Um, the GI started congregating at headquarters because they were all just like, this is already going to shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Buttram showed them a telegram response from the assistant attorney general declining help. So they got declined again for help. They were already feeling that they had lost. And even though Bill had gotten about 20 men to defend the polls that day, it wasn't enough compared to like 250 to 300. So what are they going to do? They just went about their day, I guess moping, I don't know, doing the best they could. The election went on. At 3 p.m., and this is this is not a, a good... Mm. So we're at the waterworks mm-hmm. at 3 p.m., one of the polling places. And on the map, it is uh, that pink. Okay. Um, number 31. So, and I'm saying this for the listeners as well, because I will post this on Instagram so you can see it while we're talking about this. So, Tom Gillespie, an elderly black farmer from Union Road, went to the Waterworks precinct to vote. He took voting very seriously. Of course he did. I mean, his, his, um father and grandfather and people before him weren't able to vote and he's like damn it I'm able to vote I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do my my duty mm-hmm. as a citizen so he walked in the waterworks to vote and deputy Wendy Wise told Gillespie quote inward you can't vote here oh man and I hate that yeah so Tom protested and Wise Struck him with brass knuckles. Oh, my God. And this man was, I think, in his 60s or 70s at the time. And so there were two stories as to what happened. I found two different stories, so I'm just going to tell them both. One source states that uh, Gillespie dropped his ballot and ran for the door, where Wise pulled his pistol and shot him in the back (gasps) as he reached the sidewalk. Oh, no. Another source says that he was thrown out the front door after getting hit with the uh, brass knuckles. And then he came back in and leaned against the wall as a silent protest against what was happening. And that's when Wendy shot him in the shoulder after saying some other colorful words I'm not going to say on here. Either way, he got shot. I will like to say he lived. Okay. He did live. That look on your face was sad. No, <laughs> I needed to tell you that. I just, I know. <laughs> I think, thank you for telling me that because I You're was welcome. like, he's been voting this entire time. And then in this one election, they're like, nope, he can't anymore. Like, that's so. Yep. yep. And all because of the color of his skin, which is disgusting. Yeah. So, either way, he was a beloved member of this community. Yeah. People were pissed. I mean, one, it made everyone panic. People were running down Jackson Street because Waterworks is on Jackson Street. So Mm -hmm. they were running out of Waterworks because they're like, oh God, people are getting shot now. And then oh my God, they just shot Tom. We love Tom. So everyone was mad. And he's an old man. Um, He's an old man. They took him to the jail first 
asked Mansfield what they should do with him. And then Mansfield was like, just take him to the hospital. Jesus. So dismissive of a man's life. Oh my gosh. Oh, Tom. Tom. He lived. He lived, though. He was fine. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. (sighs) Me too. So 3.15, just 15 minutes after poor Gillespie got shot, Bob Harrell and Les Dooley, remember Les is the one with the one arm? Yes. Um, were the GI Watchers at the Dixie Cafe. So we're now at the Dixie Cafe. Menace Wilburn was mm-hmm. the officer of election at this location. Remember, this is the one that deputized those people at the bar yeah. that ended up with the sailor getting shot. Yes. So Harold protested the fraud that he had seen all day. He finally just had enough and was just like, this is stupid. Like, w- stop letting minors vote. Stop letting all this fraud happen. So Wilburn hit him in the head with a club and kicked him in the face while he was on the ground. Dooley got up to intervene, but was stopped because... There were guns pointed, like, in his ribs. Oh, my God. And then the two deputies took Harold to the jail. Les Dooley had to stay at the Dixie Cafe. So, Dr. Forey, and it's spelled F-O-R-E-E, just so you know what I'm saying, Dr. Forey, showed up at the hospital to help Harold, and he was told to leave. Dr. Forey is a badass, and he pushed his way through and drug Harold's body out of the jail and took him to the hospital, where Harold thankfully lived. Good. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Forey is... Yeah. Love him. I'm glad that he, like, did what needed to be done to save this man. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dr. Minute or Dr. Jesus, <laughs> Deputy Menace Wilburn decided to close the polls early and at gunpoint led Les Dooley to the back room of the cafe where he was told to sit and don't move. And guess what was back there? A bunch of empty beer bottles. So they'd just been drinking the whole day. Oh, wow. That's not good. Yeah. So the Dixie Cafe entrance was in an alley. And both sides were blocked off by police cars. Oh, man. So. So Dooley's trapped in there. Yes. So right before 4 p.m., we're going back to the waterworks. Okay. Where Gillespie was shot. So we're going back to waterworks. Stella Vestal and five other women walked in to vote. And 4 p.m. was the, the closing time. So they walked in right before four, um, where they thought that since they were women, they had a better chance of not being assaulted for staying to watch the count. You think? Solid mentality, right? Um, They voted, and then they stayed. Uh, They were ordered out by Deputy Carl Neal, and he was being real ugly with them. And... Unfortunately, Stella's son was one of the poll watchers in the Waterworks precinct and was not happy about the way Neil was talking to his mama. Was not happy at all. Don't you speak to my mama like that. Yeah. Someone had to physically hold him back because he was, like, about to go beat the shit out of this guy, but he was unarmed. Yeah. So, of course, he was going to get killed. 
His his mom apparently, Stella Vestal, said, "You better watch what you say because you're gonna make my baby fight." <laughs> like I, I love this woman. Don't make her baby fight. No. He's gonna kick your ass. Yeah. So he had to be restrained. She realized that if if she stayed, she would probably get her son killed. So yeah. her and her friends decided to leave. They went across the street to the courthouse, voted there, and then. Um, you know, stayed outside around the courthouse. So, mm-hmm. at this point, around closing time, there was a big crowd kind of forming because the way they would post the results, they would just put it on a big board. I think it was outside the courthouse. And so, if you wanted to know the results as soon as possible, you either listened to the radio or you just stayed and watched as the numbers went up. Okay. So, closing time, 4 p.m., at Calhoun School. <laughs> um, so in this precinct, ar- just armed men walked in and handed Deputy R.T. Bryan, who was the officer of election, just handed him two packets of marked ballots. Here you go, bud. Right in front of everybody. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob Johnson, the GI poll watcher, was forced to stand away from the count while the count was happening. And Roy Jack... At the Etowah School House Precinct, um, he was told to stand away from the count as well. And he, Roy Jack was like, I think I'd rather just leave than watch this fraudulent count, right? So he left. And he was the only one that day, the only one of like the poll watchers who were, who was able to leave under his own free will. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, the Cantrell Bank ballot box, the one we talked about earlier, was put in a vault, a vault, and it would be counted whenever and however they wanted. So, they'll just get to that whenever they feel like it. Yeah. Now, you're, are you ready to hoot and holler? Because this is <laughs> awesome. So, at the Nyota <laughs> School Precinct, okay. the deputies tried to clear the school at closing time. But the crowd refused to leave. Exercise that right, people. Yes. Right to assembly. Yes. Their numbers grew to nearly 80 Niotans. Wow. And they stood together demanding a fair count. Demanding it. And the deputy said, fine. They won't count anything. And the crowd was like, the hell you won't. And the crowd made them count it correctly. Love it. Because they were outnumbered, like, 80 to, like, 2 or 3 or something like that. Nice. And Knox crushed Cantrell, 696 to 249 in that precinct. Wow. With a fair count. Yep. So, woo, go Nyota. I know. I can't believe 80 Niotans gathered together in one place. (laughs) I know, right? No shade on Nyota. (laughs) No shade on Nyota, but that was, like, almost all of Nyota back then, so... (laughs) It just wasn't a lot of people. Okay. So, waterworks. Back at the waterworks where Gillespie was shot. Mm-hmm. Ed Vestal and Shy Scott had been seized and held hostage inside the waterworks building by Wendy Wise and another Cantrell deputy, Carl Neal. They were told to sit across from the person counting... And were threatened when they tried to leave. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because apparently they didn't want the uh, people to, they didn't want the GI counters to leave or the, the people observing because then it wouldn't be like authorized count, which yeah. I don't know why they gave a shit about that, but I guess it would just draw more attention to the fact that they're being fraudulent. fraudulent. I don't know. But so remember the waterworks, you know, precinct is like just up the road. It's like up the hill um, and to the right, right before you get to the church. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, like right before you get to the church that sits on Wesleyan campus. Yes. So it's just like a block away from the courthouse. So yeah. people are gathering and hundreds of people are just downtown, which downtown is not very big. So people could see through the front windows what was happening and that the GIs were being threatened and they had to sit and they couldn't watch the count. And apparently they roared with anger. Is Get what it. the source said. Quote, roared with anger. They were pissed. So, they realized that they were being threatened. They needed to get the hell out of there because it was just, it, it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. They were way outnumbered. And apparently Ed Vestal and Shy Scott, like their families were trying to get them out. And then their families were being threatened oh in the gosh. streets. So Scott was like, he was a an airman, and one of the one of the sources said that he knew when to eject out of a situation. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess you would. And you said his um, last name's Kestrel, right? V Vestal. Oh, okay. I was because like Vestal. a Kestrel is a type of bird, so I was like, oh yeah. my gosh. It's Okay, sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, you're good. So, Shy Scott decided he's getting the fuck out of here. So, he shot out of his chair, used the desk as a springboard, and just ran into the glass door, hoping it would break. Oh. It didn't. Oh, no. <laughs> so, oh. he bounced off the door. But... The deputy started coming at him with brass knuckles, and Scott was like, hell no, and he broke through it the second time. Okay, good. And with Vestal hot on his heels, so yeah. I'm sure Vestal helped push him through. So they're, they jumped through this window, this front window, into the street. They're on their hands and knees in, like, broken glass, and they put their hands up, and they start walking away. Yeah. There's a big crowd outside. Yeah. And these... Um, deputies, you know, jump out, the, you know, they, they come outside too, and they've got all their guns pointed, and the crowd is so mad, but they're like, we don't want to get shot, we don't want them to get shot, so everyone's just like at a standstill, mm -hmm. everyone's yelling, and the crowd's yelling like, don't shoot, don't shoot, and the, the deputies are like, you better get your asses back here right now, and they're like, hell nah. So, the GIs just, like, with their hands up, just slowly start walking towards the crowd. The crowd starts coming 
closer to them and, like, mm. absorb the GIs into yeah. safety. Yeah. So, so they get away. Okay, good. And one GI is said to look at another, just in the crowd, not the two that just escaped, but they were just like, let's go get our guns. This oh, is bullshit. man. So, the crowd apparently started to taunt the deputies, saying, oh. put down your guns and meet us man-to-man in the street. We'll beat the hell out of you. Oh, my God. Yep. And meanwhile, the ballot box was taken to the jail to count in private, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would also like to point out that this is just 4 o'clock. <laughs> it's just, you mean it's like only 4. 2 a.m.? <laughs> no. Oh, God, no. No, we're just getting started. Oh, man. So, at 5.30, this, you're not going to believe this part. The craziest part of... of Almost all of this. So, Otto Kennedy, they're back at the SNA garage. SNK? SNA? SNK. I don't know why I said SNA. Anyway, so they're back at Kennedy's garage. And the GIs are just pissed. They're like, we've lost the damn thing. It was taken. They're discussing their options when two deputies come up to the garage. Otto. And his brother, Bull, who was a big, burly man who was not always on the right side of the law growing up, and a few other GIs were like, fuck you, mm-hmm. and beat the shit out of those two deputies. Oh, my God. Disarmed them, restrained them, took them as hostage, threw them on a coal pile. Wow. Two deputies. A little while later, two more deputies come. To see what happened to the other two deputies, right? Same thing happens. They beat the shit out of those two deputies again. Disarm them. Take their shit. Tie them up. Put them on the coal pile. Well, the crowd outside the um, garage gets a little rowdy. And they're like, what's going on? So they poke their heads back out. Four more deputies. (laughs) Oh, my God. Come up with their pistols drawn. And they get the shit beat out of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> and one runs away, and the other three get drug inside. <laughs> so they Damn now man. have seven hostages in just this garage. Yeah. And the crowd starts to demand that the GIs kill them. Oh, wow. Just kill them. Kill them. We're tired of their shit. Get rid of them. Thankfully, after a while, the crowd starts to disperse from that area. And some of the veterans leave, not wanting anything to do with murder. And the small group that was left ended up, I mean, they didn't kill them, but they definitely took them about 10 miles into the woods, beat the shit out of them again, and then chained them to trees. Oh, my God. This is wild. (laughs) I told you. I just kept getting further into this rabbit hole of, like, what the fuck is happening? So, Otto Kennedy left. He was just like, oh, shit. This is insane. He left with his brother and son-in-law to go, what he says, to go get more ammo. Okay. We don't really see much of anything of Kennedy for the rest of the night. So, I don't know if that's what he did or he was just like, I don't want to be caught up in this. Jim Buttram, Mm -hmm. he didn't want anything to do with this. 
And Shy Scott didn't want anything to do with anything going on now. He narrowly avoided death. Yeah. So him and Jim Buttram... Yeah, I don't blame Shy Scott at all. Because, yeah, you're right. He was the one that just broke out of the waterworks. Mm -hmm. So he was like, I'm done with this. They got out of town for the night. Honestly, don't blame him. That left mostly... Dooley, Vestal, and Self, who was another GI, to go down to the courthouse because they had GIs who had been taken hostage in the courthouse as well. Wow. They were all taken hostage, except for that one dude. Mm-hmm. So they went down there and demanded that the hostages be let go. Deputy Bill Bradford said no. And that they needed to stay and witness the count, or the count would be null and void. They demanded to see the hostages to make sure that they were okay. Bradford agreed, let them see them, but only at gunpoint, of course. Mm, Yeah. At this point, I would like to point out that Deputy Bill Bradford um, is the man that raised Nick's grandfather, he was Nick's grandfather's uncle. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. I was like, hey, Nancy. I, I, they referred to him as Papa. I said, look, I found Papa. Wow. <laughs> In this book. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, and I'll tell you a little bit more about his account later. It's not a lot because, again, these people did not talk about what happened. So, so was he like Nancy's Great, like, uncle or... Nancy's great uncle. Okay. So it was Nancy's father's uncle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's real interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, um, little information. Cantrell's forces had calculated that if they could control the 1st, 11th, and 12th precincts in Athens and the one in Etowah, Mm-hmm. The election was won. So the ballot boxes from the Waterworks, which was the 11th, the Dixie Cafe, the 12th, were safely in the jail. Mm-hmm. The voting place for the first precinct, the courthouse, was barricaded with deputies. Four GIs were held hostage there. And Paul Cantrell himself had Etowah under control. Mm-hmm. So at 835... 8.35. Jesus, I can't even read. 6.35 p.m. <laughs> Bill White apparently had grown angrier as the day wore on. So, he made a speech to the remaining GIs, and it went like this. This is pulled from an interview that was done. Well, here you are. After three or four years of fighting for your country, you survived it all. You came back. And what did you come back to? A free country? You came back to Athens, Tennessee in McMinn County that's run by a bunch of outlaws. They've got hired gunmen all over this county right now at this minute. What for? One purpose. To scare you so bad you don't dare stand up for the rights you've been bleeding and dying for. Some of your mothers and some of your sisters are afraid to walk down the street to the polling places. Lots of men, too. Because they know what happens. 
A car drives by in the night and shoots out your window. If that doesn't scare you enough, they'll set fire to your house or your barn. They'll beat up members of your family and put them in jail for no reason. Is that the kind of freedom you were supposed to be fighting for? Do you know what your rights are supposed to be? How many rights have you got left? None. Not even the right to vote in a free election. When you lose that, you've lost everything. You call yourself GIs. You go over there and fight for three or four years. You come back and let a bunch of draft dodgers who stayed here where it was safe and you were making it safe for them push you around. If you people don't stop this, and now is the time and place you people wouldn't make a pimple on a fighting GI's ass. Get guns. <laughs> End quote. Which, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the guns. motivational. <laughs> I'm just imagining like the, the got milk slogan, get guns. I know. You people. Oh, wait. Now's the time. You people wouldn't make a pimple on a fighting GI's ass. That's iconic. No, what? That. That's a very motivational speech yeah. right there. Very motivational. It was very good. So, what did they do? They got guns. Yeah. <laughs> so, some stayed home that night for fear of being killed or or prosecuted if things went south. Understandable. Um, but most of the GIs came back with guns. And again, there's a whole crowd of people still downtown because these things will go on all night because counting paper ballots takes time. Yes. So at 7.30, they're back at the garage. And among those who came back were Bill White, Jimmy Locke Miller, in his Hawaiian shirt, thank you yes. very much, David Hutzel, Sam Sims, Paul Weeks, Thomas Shamblin, George Rowland, Millard Vincent, Matt Carney, Gene Gunter, Edgar Miller, Buck Landers, Cecil Smith, Edstall Underdown, Cecil Kennedy, and Ed Mashburn. Of course, along with others, but sources are limited sometimes. Mm-hmm. They brought every firearm that they owned, but it still wasn't enough. But they knew where to find more. You know where that was? The National Guard Armory. There you go. And it's not far and away. Know, nope. And do you know what building that was? The old armory? It's not where it is now. I don't know where it, it is. It is this building right here. It is downtown. You remember where Madison Carpets is? Like on the corner? Yes. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think so. Is that the old armory? Yeah. That's the old armory. Oh, wow. Yep. And I've got a fun fact about that. I'll tell you later. But okay. So that was the National Armory. And um, so they just needed a way to get there. It was. And you can see on the map, I've kind of, I drew it out. Mm -hmm. It's like from the courthouse, it's a half mile in the direction the arrows are pointing. Mm -hmm. And then you take a right, or a, sorry, a left onto Madison Avenue, and the armor, armory's right there. Okay. Right there on the right. So, so that is that, like, sort of near where the annex is or was? Like, where they built no. the new food city? Or am I completely 
completely S- turned around. Yes, yes. So- I'm sorry. Yes, the uh, it's literally down the road from where City Park was. The school. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that road. Yep, you got it. So they just needed a way to get down there because it was half a mile, mm-hmm. and they're planning on stealing all the guns out of the armory. They're going to need some trucks and stuff. So Mink Powers offered to drive them in his wrecker along with several other people who had cars. So they go up to the armory and in a 1969 interview, Bill White said that they quote, broke down the armory doors and took all the rifles, two Thompson submachine guns and all the ammunition we could carry, loaded it up on the two-ton truck and went back to GI headquarters and passed out 70 high-powered rifles and two bandoliers of ammunition with each one. Wow. I would like to point out that Jimmy Lockmiller took two 45 Colt revolvers because he thought he could hide them under his Hawaiian shirt easily. <laughs> oh my god. This shirt just keeps popping up. It was big news. Jimmy and his Hawaiian shirts. I know. And for people who know guns, the rifles were 30 caliber M1917s. Nick knew what that was. I had to Google it. Um, I, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a gun person at all. <laughs> I know how to fire one. Do not ask me what it is. <laughs> yeah. I do not know. So no. <laughs> they had all this ammo, all these guns from the armory. Apparently the caretaker of the armory was there and the dude was just like, I don't see shit. <laughs> like, it's yeah. like, oh my gosh. Huh. <laughs> the guns are gone. <laughs> oh. Uh oh. Yep. Oh, what happened? No. Darn it. So, by 8.45, Cantrell and Mansfield were back in the jail. And about 50 deputies were locked inside with them. And they were going through these ballot boxes. So, do they even know what was happening, like, a block away? Not a single clue. They thought they fucking had it in the bag. And I actually wrote this next one. It said, if Cantrell's men had been a little more worried, they might have spotted some shadows slipping up the embankment directly across the street from the jail. Oh, shit. The GIs had moved into formation, and they surrounded the jail. Yeah, I'm sure they were using all everything they learned fighting in fucking yeah. World War II. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. These were well-trained, well-organized men who, even though they fought in different branches of the military, they fought, they did different things. They, they worked together so well, which is a testament to our military that, like, you can just, you know, I guess you could just, just... work with anybody. Yeah. Like it's universal. Some of it's universal training. Obviously, it's specialized, mm-hmm. but, you know. Yeah. So, shortly after 9 p.m., White says that he was the one that called out, quote, Would you damn bastards bring those damn ballot boxes out here, or are we going to have to set siege against the jail and blow it down? All right. A man of words. <laughs> Good words. Um, moments later, the night exploded in automatic weapons fire, punctuated by gun sh- shotgun blast. Gunshot blast, Jesus. Shotgun blast. Um, apparently, White said, I started the first shot 
Then everybody started shooting from our side. WLAR on the map Mm -hmm. is number 32, which is literally across the street from the waterworks. Yeah. And is a block away from 23, which is gold, the old jail. Yeah. Chuck Redfern was on air at WLAR. He had just started his night broadcast. Quote, you're listening to WLAR, the friendly voice of the friendly city. (laughs) While gunfire exploded in the background. Oh, my God. On live (laughs) air. (laughs) I'm sure people were listening to the radio like, oh, my. Like, and I mean, World War II just ended. I'm sure, like, some people were terrified. Like, what's happening? Like, is a war in McMinn County? Like, And he continued. Testament to Chuck Redford. He stayed on air the whole time. Wow. He was a block was away he, from this. And he just stayed was he on like air. talking about it? Yeah. Do yeah, you know? people were wow. listening to this like a broadcast of a baseball game. Wow. Yeah. So there was still a large crowd waiting for the final count, and people started running for cover. They were hiding behind trash cans, getting under cars. They were yeah. panicking. Fair enough. Um, yeah, they don't want to get shot by stray yeah. gunfire. <laughs> One person said... What was the quote? A stray bullet is just as deadly as a perfectly aimed one if it hits you. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure is. So both sides were firing now. GI and deputies both were getting hit by bullets. Uh, Bill Grubb was scouting out for more ammo for the GI position at the time. So people were getting hit left and right. Everyone's shooting at everybody, a little bit of chaos, and then the GIs shot out the streetlights surrounding, so the deputies couldn't see them as well. They started going into neighboring buildings, shooting out of windows of people's homes. Insanity. Yeah. Yeah. So... One reporter wrote, and this is where, you know, I got, like, the idea of these people working really well together. It's, along the streets could be seen small groups of attacking forces racing through the shadows to replenish ammunition supplies and to improve their firing angles. They were doing what they had learned in combat, putting the target in crossfire. Mm -hmm. Remember, this is an active jail. People are in the jail cells right now. Some of them not GI or anything related. Just people just in jail. In jail. And one source said that Jack Brown was scared to death, lying on the floor of his cell, lamenting the drunken bender that landed him in jail the night before. Oh, no, <laughs> Jack Brown. And he was probably laying there thinking, I'm never drinking again. I swear to God, I'm oh going to be God. sober. Those poor guys. <laughs> And, like, obviously from what has been happening in that town, like, it's very unlikely they were actually criminals. Yeah, probably you know, they not. they were probably, half of them are probably dragged in off the street yeah. and being like, give me my 1650. Yeah. You know? Like. I mean, it sounds like Jack Brown was actually drunk, but that doesn't mean he was doing anything to, like. Yeah, he's just in the drunk tank. Just let him, let him live his life, people. Anyway, another prisoner person in the jail was Wendell Phillips. 
a Florida man. He's from Florida. He had no clue what was going on. He had been arrested two months earlier for robbing a service station. Wow. They're just dragging their asses trying him, I guess. And he was just like, what the fuck? Where's all the gunshots coming from? What is happening? Oh, man. And remember, we've still got Walter Ellis, Bud Evans, and Howard Thompson in the jail as hostages. Yeah. So the shooting began to slow down a couple hours on. Everyone was kind of running out of ammo. They were trying to save their ammo. And Alan Stroud, broadcaster for WROL, said, quote, No one knows how many are injured, but the crowds are mad. It is one of the greatest dramas in our time. The office here is in total darkness, and the people on the street below are talking loudly and laughing. Not because they're glad, but a nervous, hysterical laugh. Because, yeah, shit's going down in their hometown. So, this is one of the funniest things. So, apparently, the bus that uh, goes from Chattanooga to Knoxville and back, Mm -hmm. that's its route, pulled up to downtown Athens uh, somewhere between 9 and midnight, and... Apparently, he, like, pulled up to the bus stop and, like, opened it like it was normal. Heard the gunshots. Yelled, oh, hell. And then <laughs> <sped> off. <laughs> oh, hell. Appropriate response. Appropriate oh, hell. Oh, hell. Oh, my God. Um, and a deputy yelled from the jail. We have three GI hostages and will shoot them if the attack is not called off. The GIs responded by firing at the jail. <laughs> Knowing that none of the hostages wanted to be the reason for a failed mission. Right. I mean, yeah. So, midnight. Midnight rolls around. So, early in the shooting, around 9 o'clock, Constable Bryant Sharp had tried to run from the battle, but was badly shot in the leg and spent the next three hours in no man's land. He was able to get to the 4E hospital. G.I. Cecil Smith knew Bryant Sharp and met him at the hospital, knowing that he would need a blood transfusion to live. So Cecil sat next to his enemy, arm to arm, getting the transfusion to Cecil, to Bryant, so he would live. And if that's not a testament to, like, these people are trying to do the right thing, then I don't know what is. Um, The National Guard in Cleveland were finally called to aid the deputies. um, Six hours later. (laughs) Yeah, and would be down in an hour or two. So they're coming to help the people in the jail. Yeah, because um, those are the government officials. Right. So, as as the uncertain battle drug on through midnight, the GIs were like, Oh, what have we done? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Like, uh, what if we are arrested? I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. Like, So, they knew they had violated so many laws that night. Mm -hmm. And if 
Cantrell wasn't stopped before his rescuers arrive, they were royally fucked. So, yeah. And the rumors that were going around com- compounded their fears. So, that the National Guard was on our, their way, the state troopers were here, Birch Biggs from the neighboring county, who also was a tyrant, was coming to the aid. Um, none of which, except the National Guard, was true. It was just rumors. Um, and George Woods had telephoned Biggs earlier that night for help. And this was another one of those, like, I found it in one source. I didn't find it in another source thing. But I'm adding it because it's funny. So apparently Biggs wasn't there. But his son, Broughton, took the call. Broughton's answer was, do you think I'm crazy? And, like, (laughs) hung up, like... I am not coming down there. I'm not sending anybody down there. And apparently then Woods was like, bye, I'm out of town. So he skipped town, saving himself. So eager to end the battle, some of the GIs made Molotov cocktails while others went to the county supply house for dynamite. The cocktails did very little damage. So 1 a.m., rolls around. We're going to put a pause on Athens, and we're going to look at Sweetwater real quick. So apparently, Knox Henry had received an anonymous call that a group of deputies and murderous people were on their way to Mm. kill him, because he can't win the ticket if he's dead. Right. Oh, man. So he left his home and escaped to Sweetwater, hoping to get away, save his family, that kind of thing. They can't find him there. Um, So that's where the local night policemen hid him in City Hall while the murderous deputies group ransacked a hotel where they thought he was. Wow. Okay. The locals learned because, I mean, you're literally going room to room in a hotel waking everybody up. So the locals learned about what was happening. And led by the mayor, surrounded the city hall, armed, ready to protect Knox Henry. Oh. So they oh, like man. they were like, fuck you, you're not getting him. Go on somewhere. And the murder party gave up and left. Wow. Yep. So thanks, Sweetwater. We appreciate it. Yeah. Because Sweetwater is not in our county. No, it's a little, it's a little ways away. A little bit. Just a touch. Just a hair. Uh, It's over yonder. So, (laughs) so we're back in Athens. I just had to tell that little story real quick. Back, back in Athens, there was still a crowd, still a big crowd. People didn't leave. They just found a safe place to watch it. Yeah. Um, so on Jackson street behind the main GI position, It had really taken the feel of a block party. Women were bringing lemonade and cookies to the GI. While this active (laughs) shooting going on. Yeah, and there's pictures of it, too. (laughs) I'll have to show you. I'll try to take pictures of it. Um, So they're on Jackson Street, which is literally a block away from the jail. So the jail is on White Street. So they're just like... 
I guess, behind, far enough away where they're just like, here's some cookies, go back to fighting. Love so you. are they, so they're still, like, the GIs are still, like, by the waterworks shooting towards the jail? Or, um, like, are they surrounded, like, they've on the surrounded. other side of DPA? Okay. Yeah, they've surrounded the jail, really. So the jail was, like, okay. kind of, I guess, I think it was a little bit, there was, like, a hill behind it. And so they've, they've moved to surround the jail okay. itself. So, like, so they're fighting in the Jackson, streets. Yeah, College Street. Yeah, they're hiding. Street. Hornsby okay. Street. They're hiding behind cars, trash cans, alleyways, all that kind of stuff. And they're shooting. Okay. They're, they're really getting that uh, jail in, in the crossfire. So they're hitting it from all okay. angles. Okay. Ken Mashburn returned to the GI position with the dynamite. At around one o'clock, and or a little maybe closer to two, I don't know. So the the GIs called, "Come out in the street with your hands up, turn the GIs loose within fifteen minutes, or we'll dynamite the jail." And they were replied with a quote ominous quiet, so the deputies didn't respond anything. Wow! So you know what they did? They said, "Fuck it, we're Wait. blowing up the jail." Um, they didn't even give him the 15 minutes? Oh, I mean, they did. <laughs> I guess. Uh, okay. But the first dynamite was thrown at 2.45-ish and okay. landed under Bo Dunn's cruiser and flipped it over. Flipped <laughs> the car over. Oh, wow. Um, I would also like to add that during this time, all the deputies had these fancy cars because they were stealing yeah. everyone's money. And... I don't know at what point, but I think maybe after the, the you know, they won, people just started flipping the cars and destroying <laughs> the cars. It was beautiful. So anyway, so 245-ish, the first one's thrown. 250, they waited five minutes. The second dynamite was thrown, but no one surrendered. And at 257, the GIs threw a third stick, which was like, Five bundles put together and they oh, threw God. it onto the front porch and the blast was so much louder than the rest of them and it was so big it blew the porch off its foundation oh my god and it was said to have bounced the needle of chuck redfern's recording device from a block away wow mm -hmm. and the deputies started yelling Stop that blasting. We give up. We're dying in here. Quit shooting and we'll surrender. <laughs> wow. Yep. Yep. So the crowd let out, quote, roars reminiscent of a college football game audience during the perilous moments of a third quarter period. Now, wow. us Southerners know how loud college football games get. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Because football is life. So, mm -hmm. the deputies who had barricaded in the courthouse, they even surrendered. They were like, please don't blow us up, too. <laughs> wow. And the captives just, like, walked out unharmed. So, that's well, good. good. I'm glad yeah. that they were not injured. Um, all the deputies, they came out with their hands up, but guess who was missing? Mr. Cantrell. Mr. Cantrell and Mr. Mansfield. They were both missing. At 3.02 a.m., so about 15 minutes after the last explosion, let's just say a decade of suppressed rage 
exploded throughout the townspeople. And this is probably when they started flipping the cars and doing the stuff. And they just attacked the deputies. I mean, beat the piss out of them. And probably would have killed them all had the GIs not reined them back in. Intervened. Yeah. Menace Wilburn, a particularly unpopular deputy because of all the shit that he did. You don't say. Had his throat slashed. (gasps) After they beat him up, someone was walking him. uh, One of the GIs was walking him to the hospital because apparently... Menace, Menace's brother was married to that GI's sister, so he really didn't oh. want to go to like Christmas get-togethers and be like, "Why'd you let Menace get killed?" <laughs> like, so I mean, they're in-laws. Yeah, so he took, um, he was taking Menace to the hospital where someone with a paper bag on his head came up behind them and just like cut his throat. Oh my god! But he did live through that. Apparently, the knife okay. wasn't very sharp. So he was able to make it to the hospital. Okay. Biscuit Ferris. You heard that right. Biscuit Ferris. Cantrell's (laughs) prison superintendent had his jaw shattered by a bullet. Oh, God. Wendy Wise was kicked and beaten senseless. I mean, they beat him and then beat him more. And then some were screaming to just hang them all. Like, literally... Who has rope? Let's hang these men. Yikes. Some people tried to shoot the other ones, but were stopped because, like, you're gonna kill innocent people. So, Mm -hmm. the GIs were able to really get the crowd under control and cleared the jail of the rioters and then locked the deputies, I guess those who didn't need immediate hospital attention, locked them up in their own jail cells. Like, and there's you know, a picture of fair. them all, like, crowded in a jail cell. That's fair. <laughs> yep. So at 4 a.m., Woods stated, because he was one of the election commissioners, he stated to to the DPA for the morning paper to run that, quote, as a member of the McMinn County Election Commission, I will concede that the GI candidates have been elected. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. And at 7.05, the DPA received a telegram from Paul Cantrell's brother stating, quote, on behalf of my brother, Paul Cantrell, I wish to concede the election to the GI candidates in order to prevent further shooting. And it was signed Frank Cantrell. Wow. Armed veterans stood guard at the jail in the courthouse overnight. Patrols marched up and down the streets. Small groups of GIs raided houses for escaped deputies. Okay. So the battle's over. 7 a.m. They kind of just disperse mm-hmm. into what they're hoping to be anim- anonymity. Yeah, that word. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I can't say it. So, because they don't want to be po- persecuted. Like, they're like, oh my God. I'm just going to go home and hope nobody says anything. So, let me get into these conflicting stories real quick before we go on to what happened after. So, some sources say that Woods was in the jail at the time of the attack, but most of the sources I found put him elsewhere and not in the jail. One source says that an ambulance pulled 
around to the north side of the jail. Assuming it was for the evacuation of the wounded, the veterans let it pass. But then two men jumped in. And those two men were Paul Cantrell and Pat Mansfield. So that's how they escaped, supposedly. But another source said that Cantrell and Mansfield were somehow just able to escape during the attack. And apparently Cantrell went to a funeral home where the funeral director wasn't really a a Mansfield guy, but he also didn't want people to break down the funeral home doors to, like, Mm -hmm. get Cantrell. So they, he put him in a hearse and helped him escape. Okay. Um, and then he made his way to his wife's hometown where his wife and daughter were at the time. They had left the night before. And then apparently Mansfield made it to Chattanooga with a bullet shot in his leg. Um, and asked for protection and they made him sit in the lobby and that protection would be issued if necessary. <laughs> well, the lobby of where? Like a police? Oh, the Chattanooga jail. Precinct. Oh. Yeah, so they were just like, mm, okay. we know who you are and you're kind of a dick, so... Well, I guess we're not we'll going to let you get shot. Um, either yeah. way, when the bullets stopped, when the smoke cleared, they were not there. Mm-hmm. So, let's get into politics after the battle. No one was killed in this battle, surprisingly. No That's one what died. I was about to ask. Yep. That's, in, like, dynamite and guns and, yeah, you know, all this craziness that happened and brass knuckles and people yeah. actually getting for real shot and not a single person died. No like, one that's died. That's wild. Yep. The deputies were released at 9.55 the next morning, August 2nd, except for Wendy Wise, because they were like, we're going to send him for as much time as we can get. (laughs) Yeah. Because he sucks. The crowd was asked to leave peacefully, and they did. They left. Governor McCord and Ralph Dugan had a very tense conversation where McCord wanted to send the state police to control the town because they had no elected officials at the moment. And Dugan said, no, they had won the fight by themselves as their appeals had gone unanswered and they would take care of themselves now. Yeah. Good for them. I mean, it makes sense. Like, they'd been asking for help for a decade. Like, Jennings had been asking the district attorney, like, please help us. Or the attorney general. And so, yeah, like, when people are frustrated and they're not getting the help that they want, they will take matters into their own hands. Exactly. And then you can't just roll in and be like, now we're going to do things our way now. Like, that's not how it works. No. Fuck off, McCord. We (laughs) won this battle, and we're going to run this town until we figure out what's going on. And no one died. And no one died. So a 3 p.m. meeting was held in the courtroom that afternoon of August 2nd. In that meeting, J.P. Cartwright, Major Carl Anderson, and Reverend Bernie Hampton of Keith Methodist Church... You know where that is. I do. Um, Was they were assigned to lead the county while things got sorted out. Okay. So in the following days, armed GIs patrolled the streets of Athens. Things were still really tense with rumors of Manfield's army poised to reclaim Athens. Hundreds of men were issued permits to carry weapons. Machine guns on rooftops guarded the... uh, 
approaches to town. Uh, several times the groups rushed to barricade roads and occasionally stopped innocent travelers in their attempt to thwart an invasion that never came. Okay. So, on... It's not like they were being harassed or anything, but they were just being very overly cautious, which yeah. is fair. So, on August 4th, Mansfield telegraphed his resignation as sheriff of McMahon County to <laughs> yeah. Governor McCord. <laughs> yeah. And requested that Knox Henry fill his unexpired term, which would have ended on September 1st. So, uh, Knox Henry got an extra month out of it. Okay, there you go. So, Henry was appointed immediately, and state representative Woods returned to the county under GI protection to convene the election commission and certify the election. So, they had to have somebody from the um, commission to do it. And apparently, a cheer rang out when they announced that Knox had won the vote 2175 to 1270. So, there were only like 30... 400 votes or something like that that year, but he won two to one, basically. 28 elected officials resigned in McMinn County and were replaced after this happened. Were they all part of the Cantrell machine? Yep. (laughs) Not surprising. (laughs) Yep. Only two officials stayed and they were like, not even that big. Mm -hmm. And I forgot to write them down. So apparently Ray Hammer... Mr. Hardware Store owner himself became the mayor. Oh, there you I go. know. Shy Scott became alderman. J.P. Cartwright replaced Cantrell in the Senate. Okay. And John Peck won Wood's seat in the House. All right. And Judge Sue Hicks charged the grand jury with investigating any possible crime from that night, including but not limited to breaking into the armory firing at the jail, election fraud, overturned cars, etc. Mm-hmm. The, the investigation by the Tennessee National Guard found, quote, no evidence that the armory was entered <laughs> or anything used that night of the riot belonged either to the state guard or the federal government. <laughs> and when investigators would come into town to ask the town questions, everyone was just like, I don't know. I didn't really get a good look at who the shooters were. I mean, I didn't see anybody. I didn't recognize anyone. I mean, one guy was just, like, tall, I guess. That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the only reason that these people didn't get jail time was because the town was behind them 100%. And they were just like, I ain't writing out my neighbors. Well, and, like, they helped the county. Like, they helped free them from the corruption of the machine. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure even the people that did vote for Cantrell didn't want to. They were just scared not to. Yeah. And in the press, the press didn't take it very well, only because they're only seeing the one day. They didn't see the 10 years of corruption before that. So I was reading this and I was just like, you're not getting it right. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I was like, I'm going to two-parter on this one. (laughs) So... Uh, on August 2nd, so the day after headline in the New York Times, wrongly trumpeted the news that a Tennessee sheriff was slain in primary day violence. Wow. Get it right, please. Yeah, it sounds just like it's a very reactionary headline 
It's like salt papers, probably. So, all day long, reporters with cameras and notebooks just poured in and just took pictures, questions, all that stuff. That's pretty much the only reason I think we have the pictures that we do. Except there were a few that happened during the shooting, but none of them had faces in it. Mm -hmm. So, you couldn't even tell. So, at first, the victory seemed to not be fixing much of anything, at least nationally. So, another New York Times stated, quote, corruption, when and where it exists, demands reform, and even in the most corrupt and boss-ridden communities, there are peaceful means by which reform can be achieved, but there is no substitute in a democracy for orderly process. You're wrong, New York Times, that there was only one way to get this done. Yeah, because they tried peaceful methods. They tried. And the syndicated columnist Robert C. Ruark commented, quote, There is very little difference, essentially, between a vigilante and a member of a lynch mob. And if we are seeking an answer to crooked politics, the one that the Athens boys just propounded sure ain't it. Commonwealth cautiously compared the battle to the American Revolution, then went on to say that, quote, Nothing could be more dangerous, both for our liberties and our welfare, than the making of the McMahon County Revolution into a habit. So I, I do understand, like, we can't use guns to solve all of our problems. My counter, what these, these citizens were experiencing a decade of absolute tyranny. I mean, that's what it was. Like, they, they were in a very corrupt, very... Like, they had no power. They lost all their power. So, like, it's so crazy to compare them to the Revolutionary War and then be like, you know, like this. I mean, it definitely shouldn't happen all the time, but people should not be brought to those circumstances. Like, people deserve to live in a democracy where they have elected officials that they choose to help better their society. That's the whole whole reason we have a democracy in the first place. Exactly. And apparently the, the press kept, like, nitpicking everything that the GIs did up until everything got settled again. But a really cool thing that happened was other people, and obviously this isn't going to get published in the big press or anything, but other people from other parts of the country started writing letters to these GIs asking them how how do we fix our crooked politics in our county and unanimously all the GIs were like peacefully you need to do it peacefully we did not want to do this this is not how we wanted it to end and it just ended up happening that mm-hmm. way well so, and again like the please do it peacefully. well and the gis like they weren't like they didn't kill a single person in the shootout they as soon as you know the deputies surrendered they laid down their arms they made sure that they yep. were protected from the crowd that wanted to kill the deputies and they're like no like they're no one's going yep. to die tonight um and one of them went and saved that one guy on purpose, specifically went to the hospital to give him a blood transfusion. Yeah. That's not how they wanted to do right. things. They they just wanted to change 
the the like the political structure in their county like they didn't they weren't gunning yeah. for blood they didn't want to massacre anyone and that's what the difference is no. like i think that's what it's interpreted as like by these newspapers like oh it's just like this crazy massacre and like they're just trigger happy and you know all the stuff like that's not what happened at all like you have to look at the context of why this happened yeah yeah and that's an, again another reason why i went into detail because if you just look at the story you think oh my god why why would the gis do that and that's exactly what these news sources did is they looked at the one day mm-hmm. and they took a snapshot and they were like man those gis have lost their minds yeah we can't do this but if you look at the whole story you realize they didn't have another choice yeah and they were getting their town back mm-hmm. so a little bit of the aftermath so on august 11th 1946 uh the five gis elected to office and mcmahon announced that they would only take the five thousand dollars everything past that would go back to the county there was very little criminal prosecution and the only person to actually have anything was Wendy Wise mm-hmm. and but unfortunately he only drew a sentence of one to three years for shooting Tom Gillespie and he paroled That's after it? one year. That's one it. year for attempted murder? Yes. And George Sperling remember he was the deputy that murdered Earl Ford. Yeah. He was actually convicted and sentenced to 15 years. Still not and one long day. enough for murder. Not long enough, but it's better than one to three years. Yeah. Not near long enough, though. Um, the They did form the Good Government League, and that held town hall meetings to improve government, and it sounds like the Justice League. <laughs> it does. To me. Good Government League. <laughs> Good Government League. Um, Knox served two terms as sheriff, but unfortunately he died at the age of 39 after a couple months long of an illness. Oh, no. His, uh, so young. Chief, I know. His chief uh, deputy was Otto Kennedy. Okay. And... Otto Kennedy succeeded him after his death. Okay. So, Paul Cantrell, after seeking asylum in Chattanooga for a while, he returned to Etowah and just operated the bank with his brothers. <laughs> no and more that was politics. It? He that just was it. Just he just went in back Etowah home. and was like, I'm in this bank now. Yep. Ain't no, ain't, do nobody know harm, no how. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> just me in this bank here. <laughs> I never hurt nobody. <laughs> like, what? He just, like, all right, I'm just going to live the rest of in. my life. Yeah, he didn't, do, he didn't do politics anymore. Uh, wow. Pat Mansfield returned secretly to Athens on August the 8th, which was very soon. The 8th. Yeah, that was only a week a later. Couple, yeah. He resigned his membership on the election commission. Um, uh, he yeah. met with Otto Kennedy for two hours, apparently with no ill feeling on either side, and then announced, quote, I'm through with politics for good. 
It'll sure <laughs> mess you up sometimes. I'm going back to railroading. Yeah, go back to railroading, Mr. Mansfield. Yep. No, no more exploiting uh, the, your constituents. Thanks, So, <laughs> on the first anniversary of the incident, the Times reported, quote, Today it appears that this political coalition of World War II veterans for direct action in community affairs, which many at the time regarded as a factor likely to develop nationally in the post-war period, comma, was purely a local phenomenon to which veteran participation was incidental. So I guess they thought that veterans all over the country were going to, like, start a revolution. No. Like, again, like, you're not looking at the context of what happened. No. Not at all. So in the years past, remember, this is a really small town. Athens isn't that big now. Um, The men... And the families of the participants on both sides went about their lives. Children from both sides became friends, married, went to school together, all that stuff. And Paul Cantrell and Otto Kennedy later on ended up becoming hunting buddies. And they bred their hunting dogs together. So everyone just went on about their lives. Wow. I mean, you know what? Like, if you can have a mini revolution in your town and no hard feelings, props to you. (laughs) Can we not bring that kind of mentality back? I swear. Oh, my gosh. Like, what what a positive outlook. Like, you know, like, I I, do I think that Paul Cantrell should have seen some kind of justice for what he did to the people absolutely absolutely um but if his former constituents were willing to live and let live and they're like yeah all right like he's just gonna live here and sure whatever yeah you know now i'm sure that not everybody treated him i'm sure i'm well. sure oh i'm sure there were some people that wouldn't even talk to him but for the most part he just seemed to go about his life well. And the jail was sold to a developer in, I think, the 50s. And the site is now a parking lot. And there's a beautiful mural, which I will put on Instagram, about the battle. And Ralph uh, Dugan died of his kidney disease at the age of 51, unfortunately. So there was a newspaper article from 1985... And I thought this was a really nice one. So it said, Athens has not changed that much in 40 years. There's a new courthouse, an imposing structure that is too large for its site. The old one burned down during renovations in 1964. Farmers no longer gather on the square. There is no place for them. An effort at downtown renovation can only be described as timid, a cautious imitation of smaller projects in the larger cities. They have a new jail, an austere building that seems to embody the adage that crime does not pay. The Daily Post Athenian is alive and well and still comfortably middle of the road. I just thought it was really funny that they said that the courthouse was too big because it's it huge. sure as Isn't hell it like is. four stories? It's, it's like, yeah, it's like four stories and it goes from Corner to corner, yeah, it's there an is entire no yard, city block. Like, at all. It's an entire city block. 
Like, well, maybe not a city no, block. It's it. an entire Athens block. <laughs> it's an yeah, it's an entire Athens block. Jesus, you're right. But it's a whole block. Like that picture of the courthouse that seems to be overflowing onto the road. It's because it yeah. does. Like it's, it's a massive it's too big. courthouse. Yeah. The same article stated later that in the mid '50s, Athens was isolated by a new highway that intercepts Highway 11 south of Nyota and rejoins it at Riceville. Mm -hmm. Along it, a new Athens grew, a town of McDonald's, Kawasaki, and Pizza Hut. If you ask people along the streets about the election of August 1946, they will point up White Street and mumble something vague about a shootout. There are no signs or monuments to commemorate the event. People have forgotten or do not wish to remember. But the graying manager of a local store, a friendly sort and so gentle with his grandchildren, squeezed off a round after round at the jail that night. And the driver, snoozing behind the wheel of his cab, not really caring whether he catches a fare or not, helped wrap and toss a deadly bundle of dynamite that sailed through the air. You can bet they remember. When was that article written? 1985. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so it was almost 40 years after. So I just thought that was really cool the way it was written. Yeah. So apparently we're going to get into some facts and some family tales. So Nick's grandfather's uncle, the guy that raised him, was that deputy Bill Bradford. Yes. And apparently he was in the jail when the shooting started. And apparently he dipped and he was like, Mm-mm, <laughs> nope. He jumped over the back wall out the back. Oh Bye. My gosh. That's hilarious. <laughs> and escaped out the back. Apparently what my dad told me was that at the time, my papa, my dad's dad mm-hmm. was about 17 at the time and lived on the hill, like behind the jail. And after the dynamite exploded, he like was... T- he just, like, ran up onto the porch. Like, he was just like, what's going what's on? What's happening? Like a curious teenager. Wow. <laughs> like, Papaw, that's not smart. <laughs> so the armory. Remember Corey's family-owned case? Yes. The trucking company? Yes. Corey's family owned the armory. That was case. Wow. I had no idea. Wow. Okay. How have I known Corey? How have we known Corey for 20 years and not known that her family just owned the armory? Nancy worked there for decades. <laughs> like, just, okay. <laughs> That's crazy. But I mean, like, with all the walkers that were talked about, like. Yeah. And not necessarily. I don't think any of those walkers were related to that our walkers. Yeah. Yeah. I think they were from different parts. Another one. One of Lou's cousins, like second cousin or something like that, was the granddaughter of Otto Kennedy. She she was mentioned in this book. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, small town. <laughs> <laughs> there was, in, I think, 94, a Hallmark movie made, like, based on the Battle of Athens. That's the one that I watched a couple weeks no ago, shit. and I was like, I'm watching a Hallmark movie. No shit. Watch it. It's called An American Story Audience. Please watch it. I found it on YouTube for free. Okay. An American story. There is a little, yeah, American story. There is a little part in the beginning that for some reason doesn't have sound. Get past that part. You're good to go. It's just a, it's nothing important. So it's fine. So there have been other books 
that I wanted to read that I just didn't have time. One of those is called Swifter Than Eagles, Bill White and the Battle of Athens, written by Howard Cook. And the other one is The Battle of Athens by C. Stephen Byram. They're older, probably harder to find. The one that I referenced a lot, along with other references, was called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens. It was written by Chris DeRose. He started researching in 2018 and finished the book in 2020. So it's a newer edition, and he was able to... Because unfortunately, everyone that participated Mm -hmm. has passed because it's been 80 years. He was able to talk to the children and grandchildren of these people, find documents that these people had left behind that they wouldn't have showed anybody else, but maybe their kids and grandkids didn't have any qualms about showing people. So he has probably an entire chapter's worth of sources in the back of this book. That I think make it a re- makes it a really good reference. So he interviewed a bunch of people. He seemed to go through a lot of like newspaper articles and stuff like that. So that's a really good. You can find it on Amazon for like fifteen bucks. Highly suggest it. He has pictures in there about you know what's what happened and all that stuff. So it's really cool. Also, a lot of back history. So many things. Half of my book is highlighted. (laughs) I think I put maybe a third of what I wanted to put in here, in Mm -hmm. there. So, please go down there and read, or go down there. Go read the book. Mm -hmm. But where I want you to go is the Living Heritage Museum in Athens. If you're ever in the area, please go down there and see them. They're wonderful people. I walked in. I told them I was doing a podcast. They took me directly to the to the cases. They were like, if you need anything, let me know. Take all the pictures you want. They're wonderful. Morgan and I went to high school with the curator. Found that out when I went in there. And I will post the address and the link and everything I can about it in the notes. And uh, fun fact, the museum is in the old high school building. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know that. I did, I did know that, actually. You I did think know it's, that. I, I think... think it's in the museum. Like, this is the old, like, women's... It's like the old McMinn County High School, and it's also the old women's college. Something like that. Something yeah, like I think that. my dad went to high school there, is what he said. <laughs> I was about to say something. Say it. So let's say Rob's old. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, we have a special um, surprise for y'all tonight. And if you're an Athens local native and you're a millennial, you more than likely know who Prof Powers is. He was a... Oh, God. How do we describe him? He was like an icon of the town. Yeah, he was a a cultural staple in the town. Mm -hmm. He... I mean, like, he was a storyteller. He was... He was a principal at uh, City Park School for a long time. Um, He was very active in, like, when we would go to Camp Utananochi, he would tell us scary stories. He was active with uh, the Boy Scouts. He was friends with my dad. He was a staple in the community. My One of my earliest memories when I moved to Athens, I went to City Park and I remember we had an assembly and we just sat in the gym and he just told us stories for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. And that, 
He was yeah. amazing. He was so funny. He made a clock for my parents. That's, that's by really the way, awesome. That they still have to that's this really day awesome. for their wedding. Um, so I went to the Living Heritage Museum and I was looking for a book on the Battle of Athens. And I didn't find one. But what I did find was written by Prof Powers himself in 2000. He wrote a book named Prof's Favorite Jokes. <laughs> and for you tonight, my beautiful ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I'm going to read to you one of Prof's favorite jokes. <laughs> I'm going to try not to laugh through this because I laugh really easy and, and dumb jokes. <laughs> Me <Okay>. too. <laughs> okay. I can do this. So, three boys, John, Jim, and Jerry, are seated on a dock looking over the lake. What do you think is the meanest thing in this lake? John asked. It must be an alligator, says Jim. No, Jerry said. It's a crocodile. John tells them both they don't know anything. The meanest thing in that lake is a crocagator. In a chorus, Jim and Jerry ask, What's a crocagator? John explains that on one end, he has a big head like a crocodile, and on the other end is an alligator head. John, if he has a head on both ends, how does he go to the bathroom? <laughs> he don't. That's what makes him so mean. <laughs> page one. Y'all get ready because I'm going to read more of these <laughs> later on. Not today. <laughs> okay, so thanks for listening to the Battle of Athens. I know it's been a little longer than we anticipated, but I was obsessed with this and thanks for sticking with us. If you want to email us at illequipedhistory at gmail.com no dashes or anything Find us on Instagram at Ill Equipped History and, and maybe a Twitter like share soon. review. Maybe a Twitter coming soon. That has been we've been talking about. It. So if you want us to get a Twitter, let us know. Okay? It's, it's kind of a minefield Thanks. right now. Like we were talking about it and we're like, do we want to do a Twitter? I don't know. Like it's kind of weird right now. It is super weird, but if you guys want us to do one, we'll do one. We're doing uh, this. So yeah, for you, our lovely listeners. So, yeah. So, I guess we're going to hop off here. And... Okay, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>